How are we doing? Great. Darren looks great up here as well. If you haven't seen his haircut, it's amazing. Well, we're going to continue our time in Genesis this morning as we get rolling. Um, I'm going to tell a little story. Uh, back when I was a seminary student back in uh, Chicago at Moody Bible Institute, I had an amazing job. And despite being in grad school for those four years, those years were actually my most financially lucrative years of my life. What was I? Well, don't laugh, but I was a crossing guard for a private school in the Gold Coast neighborhood of Chicago. $30,000 a year to send your kindergartner to get educated. Clearly, these children came from powerful, elite families of Chicago. The Chase Bank, the president, sent his kids there. Carrie Wood, if you're familiar, Cubs pitcher, sent his kids there. Joan Cusack, the actress, sent her kids there. And my job was simple, really, in theory. It's keep the congested, out-of-control Chicago downtown traffic flowing smoothly at dismissals while ensuring the safety of children, overly confident children, crossing the road who may or may not like to uh, listen to what I had to say. But one day I will never forget, and that was the day I was standing at the curb and this sports car rolls up. And I don't know my cars, but it was a really nice car. It rolls up, and I realize as I'm standing there, staring straight at me in the eyes, are the eyes of none other than Mr. Frank Thomas, the big hurt. If you know your baseball, you know he's one of the greatest. But he's staring right at me. And he's staring like, daring me, what are you going to do, crossing guard? Are you going to make me keep moving, or are you going to let me stay right here? And he was staring me down, and I was like, no way am I going to tell you what to do. You go ahead, Mr. Thomas. You sit there. We'll let this traffic kind of get congested because you are Mr. Thomas, and you can sit right there. I buckled. I completely buckled. <laughs> I, worked on a, I worked on the streets of Chicago with five guys. There were five of us. And we were uh, hourly workers, and our per-hour pay was, like, incredible. So if you wanted to make money, all you did was you tried to get as many shifts as possible. And typically, although it was unofficial, the way hours were assigned was it was assigned by seniority. Uh, and so two years into this job, we had a new hire. And instead of going by this seniority rule, he immediately began to clamor for all the shifts. He, he wanted to make money, and I got that because I wanted to make money too. But the, I was just not a fan of the way in which he would go about getting his hours. He would convince and manipulate the other guys like, not to pick up shifts. This is why you shouldn't do this. He would, uh, he would plead and beg. He'd go into our boss's office and just like, plead, I need these hours. Please give me these hours. He would check in early, like way early and stay way late. He would suggest throughout the week to us, like, this is why you should not do this. And like, so that he could pick up our shifts. He was just very manipulative to us. And what this guy did, it wasn't like, it wasn't wrong per se, but it was really irritating and frustrating because here was a guy who lived in a perpetual struggle, striving to get ahead of us, to beat us out of our pay, a guy who squeezed everything he could out of this job. And it's a guy who reminds me in a lot of ways like Jacob. Jacob, that conniving, weasley, lying, younger brother who manipulated right his way to the top of the family, deceiving to get the family blessing and birthright. And like my former co-worker, Jacob gives our hearts, if we look at the story of Jacob, our hearts might be full of like irritation at this guy. 
that he that were just frustrated that he achieved what he achieved because of the way in which he chose to achieve it. And as we read our text this morning, I wouldn't doubt that maybe perhaps as it's read, you might have this like faint smile of like satisfaction because Jacob gets what he deserves, deceiver becoming deceived. There's justice, so to speak. Yet despite putting our feelings away for what we feel about Jacob, we know this, we saw this last week in Genesis 28, that God graciously pursues Jacob. And we saw in Genesis 28 that he has an encounter, a personal encounter with God, and that Jacob enters into this covenantal relationship. And this is a major development in the life of Jacob. Because throughout our story, it's always been the God of Abraham and Isaac. But now it's the God, Yahweh is the God of Jacob. And, and then as soon as this personal encounter happens, then chapter 28 comes to an end, Right? And we're left, like, when you're reading a good book, right now I'm reading a good book right now, and every time the chapter comes to an end, there's always a plot twist, right? And I'm like, oh my gosh, I cannot stay up any longer, but I'm going to have to because I need to know what happens with this plot twist. And we keep the bedside light on, right? That's how Genesis 28 closes. We're like wondering, what is this encounter with God going to do in the life of Jacob? Will Jacob be Jacob, deceiver, manipulator, working out this covenantal promises for his own personal gain? Or will Jacob learn what it means to place his trust in God, to live under his rule? It's a question that we can turn around and ask our own selves. How do I respond to the fact that Jesus Christ has made himself known to me? Do I perhaps possess Jacob tendencies in my life to manipulate or to scheme, responding not in faith, but in seeking personal gain. You see, we're going to see that although Jacob has encountered God, Jacob's sinful character and all those tendencies are not immediately remedied. For we, like Jacob, are in a process of being com- becoming transformed, right? And in this transformational process, we're going to see in our text that there are faith lessons. God always brings us faith lessons to learn as we're being transformed more like Jesus. And by God's mercy, we're going to notice two faith lessons. There's probably more, but we're going to see two faith lessons in the life of Jacob. One, that God's promises are certain and guaranteed. And that God's promises do not preclude the possibility of God's discipline. God's promises are certain and guaranteed. And God's promises do not preclude the possibility of God's discipline. And I'm going to invite Megan Mitchell to come up now. And if you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn to Genesis 29. She's going to come and read our text for us this morning. If you have a Bible, it's great to be in the text looking at the words. If you don't have a Bible, there's some in the back behind the sound booth, or it will be on the screen. But follow along as Megan reads our text, Genesis chapter 29. Genesis chapter 29, verses 1 through 30. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the servants would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We are from Haran, he said to them. Do you know Laban the son of Nahor? 
They said, We know him. He said to them, Is it well with him? They said, It is well, and see Rachel his daughter is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, there, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your young, younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilbah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. Thank you, Megan. Well, as we come into Genesis 29, remember again that we've left Genesis 28, where Jacob has this um, encounter with God, and, and we see that he's embarking on this bride-seeking seeking mission. And we see that this ch- chapter 29 is really divided into two scenes. The first scene, we see that he's at this well, at the well in this country of Haran. And then we'll see another scene later. But we start with this first scene, and we have a faith lesson here for us, that God's promises are certain and guaranteed. And I want us to look, verses 1 through 14, really complete this first scene at the well. 
And follow along with me as we just kind of recap again what happens in this first scene. Starting in verse 2, we see that Jacob has indeed um, come to a well in verse 2. And in a conversation that he has with some local shepherds, he discovers that he has uh, stumbled into this country of Haran, which is the country of his uncle, mother, his, mother's, um, his uncle, uncle of his mother. And during this conversation at the well, we see that, that Rachel, daughter of Laban, Laban, appears and she's bringing her sheep to be watered, to have a drink. And as these events are unfolding in this, in this scene, perhaps your mind goes back to a former narrative in Genesis where we see another man on a bride-seeking mission who happens to be at a well as well. No pun intended there. Um, but go back to Genesis 24. I want us to look at that chapter. Let your eyes fall on Genesis 24. <clears throat> And we see here in this chapter that Jacob actually sent, or not Jacob, Isaac sends his, not Isaac, Abraham, got it right? Abraham sends his servant to find a wife for his son, Isaac. And, uh, and the servant goes where? To a well in the country of Haran, and he meets Rebekah, who happens to then be Isaac's wife-to-be. So very similar accounts at a well finding a wife. And I want us to notice in Genesis 24, three specific actions of Abraham's servant. The first one is this. Throughout this narrative, not only just once, but several times, this servant petitions God in prayer. Look with me in verse 12 of chapter 24. And he, uh, Abraham's servant, said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. We see that the servant petitions God in prayer. We also see that the servant devises a test. He's really leaning upon God for confirmation, which leads him to say in verse 21, the man, the Abraham servant, gazed at her. He's gazing at Rebekah in silence to learn whether the Lord has prospered his journey or not. He's studying the character of Rebekah. And then thirdly, we see that the servant responds in worship to God's providence and bringing him to the family that he's supposed to meet. And he not only responds in worship not once, but multiple times throughout this account. He responds in worship to Rebekah in verse 26, to Laban in verse 48, and to Isaac in verse 66. This servant petitions God in prayer. He devises a test to confirm God's leading, and he worships God in response to his providence. And this is so much evident that the, the narrator, the narrator um, laces this entire account in Genesis 24 together by this, this idea that this man has total confidence and trust in God's provision. We see that. It's very clear in this text. But as we go back over to Genesis 29, our text this morning, I want you to glance through those first 14 verses. I want you to notice, do we find Jacob in prayer? Do we sense Jacob leaning upon God for confirmation? Does Jacob respond to God in worship upon finding Laban? And as we glance through that text, the answers are pretty obvious. No, no, we don't. All three, no, no, and no. You know, absent altogether from our text this morning, from this narrative, is God. He's nowhere in this text. Instead of calling upon God in prayer for God's provision, Jacob calls in verse 4 upon local shepherds to confirm his location. He's totally oblivious that he has indeed like stumbled into this country that he was seeking. Instead of seeking God's confirmation and studying the character of Rachel, what does Jacob do? He seeks out to impress this beautiful girl with his incredible strength, 
removing a stone that would have taken many shepherds to move away from the well. That's why they're all waiting for each other to gather so that they could all move this stone. But Jacob does it by himself, impressing the girl. Instead of offering praise to God for this chance meeting with Rachel, Jacob offers the girl an embrace. He's failing to recognize the providence that brought him to this moment. At the well in Genesis 29, Jacob, we have no recording of him offering prayer or praise to God. And I think it's by this alarming, as I observe this text, it's an alarming absence of God, especially in contrast to Abraham's servant in Genesis 24. And because of that absence, I think that we can understand that this narrative cannot be divorced from the promises given to Jacob in chapter 28. For one promise, among others, that God gave uh, Jacob in, in chapter 28, he said, Behold, in verse 15, Genesis 28, 15, Behold, I, God, am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised for you. But we know Jacob, right? He spent his entire life in a perpetual and miserable struggle doing what it takes to get ahead. At birth, right, in Genesis 25, he's grasping the heel of his older twin brother. And later on, he's grasping for the birthright and blessing of the family away from his older brother. Jacob's life to this point has always been marked by what he alone can achieve. Therefore, I find it not surprising that God is not written into this narrative. For Jacob, despite God's promises in chapter 28, continues, I believe, to operate out of his own ability. And the narrative seems to stack up the sheer odds of this actually happening for Jacob on his own to achieve this bride-seeking mission. Travel with me in verse 4. Let me put it this way. Jacob, he's traveling to an unknown land, oblivious of location, happens to locate a well, which happens to have local shepherds who happen to know Jacob's extended family. So as it happens that they have this conversation, Rachel happens to pass by. And because the shepherds happen to know Rachel, they set up the introductions to each other. And Jacob, a complete stranger to Rachel, gives her a kiss. But Rachel happens not to turn and run away in fear, but rather happens to bring him to her dad, who happens to agree that Laban or that Jacob is family, despite the fact that over a hundred years have gone by since Laban's last interaction with Rebecca's family. And all this happening stuff was over 500 miles away on foot without the aid of GPS, servant, or animal. What I think this narrative reveals to us is God's providence and the fulfillment of his promises. A God who has led Jacob to the right land, finding the exact well where he would meet the right shepherds at precisely the exact moment so that he could be introduced to his bride-to-be. We know that God had promised Jacob, I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And he said this, and in you, Jacob, and in your family, all the families of the earth will be blessed. God's promises are certain and guaranteed. We're seeing them become fulfilled in Jacob's life. And it's a truth that would have been profoundly significant for the desert-wandering Israelite. And I think it's a truth that's profoundly significant for us to consider. 
For often, are we not like Jacob, completely lacking an awareness of God at work in our lives? To help bring this a little more clarity, Emily and I, we dated in Chicago. And I think Chicago is the best place in the whole world to date. I just do. And one date I remember really well. I created a choose-your-own-adventure date. So prior to date, this is what I did. I wrote onto pieces of paper different adventure options. And then Emily was then to choose from these five folded pieces of paper an adventure. And whatever that adventure was she drew, that's what we were going to do. And then after we did that adventure, she would choose from a new five different uh, adventure options and so on and so on as the day went on. Emily believed that at random she was orchestrating our date. But here's one important detail that she did not know that I knew all too well, that each time she came to choosing that adventure option from those five folded pieces of paper, they were all the same adventure (laughs) option. It was random to her, but I planned it because I had to. I mean, how else are you going to get buses and trains in Chicago lined up just right you know, hunger pains, we got to evaluate that situation. We got to, you know, and Chicago's a big city, I, and, uh, you know, I don't want to get lost. Emily believed, and because I made her believe this, that she was in control of this adventure. But she lacked an awareness of how I had already perfectly worked out the details of the date. She believed our time together was a product of her own choosing. In much the same way, in our text, I believe Jacob at the well lacks an awareness of how God has completely already worked out all the details for him to meet his wife. Jacob believed that on his own, he had brought about this incredible blessing of finding Rachel. And often our lives are like Jacob, completely lacking of awareness of God at work in our lives, convincing ourselves, right? To believe that the blessings I enjoy in my life are the product of my own doing. That I, I was diligent enough. I was was clever enough. I worked hard enough that now I can enjoy the blessings that I have achieved. It reminds me of the words, I don't know which way it goes. If it's doxology hymn or hymn of doxology, it could go either way, I guess. But the words, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise them, all creatures here below, as it continues. But that first line, praise God from whom all blessings flow. James 1.17 echoes this, uh, this, this, uh, this theme. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. And I think we need to ask ourselves this morning, how do you and I, how do we misread the blessings of God as our own doing? You know, we can peer into the life of Jacob, and we see a man that's consumed by selfish gain. He's within this perpetual and miserable struggle, grasping to add significance and value to his life. And we discover that by living in that life, under that perspective, you will always misread the blessings of God as your own doing. And I think instead of grasping and struggling to squeeze the most out of life for personal gain, I think what this narrative draws us to consider is God's already given promises. Because the promises given to Jacob in Genesis 28 by faith are true for us today. Remember the four Ps from last week. We are a people purchased, redeemed, and bought for his possession. 
We have been offered a place of eternal inheritance, a place with no pain or tears. We have a guarantee of his presence. His spirit never will leave or forsake us. And we are given a proactive mission to declare and demonstrate who Jesus is. You see, when we know the promises of God, when we believe the promises of God, when we live under those promises of God, I think we find our perspective shifts and changes. No longer lacking awareness of God at work, but rather we look for and we long for desiring a greater portion of God and his promises in our life. Either we live under Jacob's tendencies, grasping for more, or we live by faith, accepting God's promises as certain and guaranteed. Fine family, I want you to hear this, that do not disregard the blessings of life as a product of your own diligence or hard work or cleverness, for every blessing is from God. God's promises, faith lesson number one, God's promises are certain and guaranteed. As we leave the well and enter into verse 15, we come to our second scene in verse 15. And it's here that's a fascinating story of deception and love. And we're going to see that God chooses to use Laban in Jacob's life to produce another faith lesson. And that is this, that God's promises do not preclude the possibility of God's discipline. As we read through this scene, we know, as it was read already, that Jacob is in love with Rachel, right? And he agrees with Laban to work seven years for the hand of Rachel in marriage. And because of Jacob's uh, love for Rachel, we see in verse 20 that those years pass quickly for him. And then starting in verse 22, we see that deception begins to enter into our story. And it's a deception that is linked by the irony of the deception Jacob employed in Genesis 27 with his own family. In Genesis 27, we have a father who is deceived by the younger pretending to be the firstborn. And in Genesis 29, in our text, we have a father deceiving, pretending the firstborn to be the younger. In Genesis 27, we know that Isaac eats a meal, right? Because of the darkness brought on by his failing eyesight, Isaac believes that he is blessing his elder son Esau, when in reality he's blessing the younger, right? As we go into our text in Genesis 29, Jacob, he eats a meal. It's his wedding feast. But because of the darkness brought on by several things, probably the drinks of the feast, there's lots to drink. There's the veil of the bride covering the, the woman. And there's the unlit tent. There's no electricity. But there's a darkness. And Jacob believes in that darkness that he's marrying his younger, the younger sister, Rachel, where in reality he marries the elder, Leah. And now we have the deceiver deceived. And as we look at Jacob's response in verse 25, as he wakes up in the morning and he exclaims in verse 25, he says, what is this that you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? As I've read through this text, I, I, I just observe, like, did Laban really think he was going to get away with this deception? Like, really, Laban? Like, I think he's going to figure this out. And, and the defense that Laban gives that, oh, this is a local custom. Well, I don't know. That seems far-fetched in the sense that you had seven years to clarify this matter with Jacob, you know? 
And Jacob, in verse 25, we see he approaches Laban and he appears to be angry, right? He's demanding, what is this that you have done to me? But as the text continues, it seems that Jacob just kind of accepts without question the terms of Abraham's new agreement, which is very harsh, seven additional years of service. But we see that Jacob offers no counter argument. And I ask myself over and over this, this week, why? Why is this? And the one thing that I think may be true is that for the first time in Jacob's life, at least what's recorded, Jacob experiences the brutal and agonizing pain of betrayal. And I think the narrator clues us into this by, by looking at the words that Jacob expressed. He says uh, in verse 25, why then have you deceived me? And if you go back to Genesis 27, those are the words used by Esau in relation to the deception there. And I think as Jacob like utters these words, as they're coming out of his mouth, maybe you have this, I have this often, like I say something, I'm like, oh, I should not have said that. Because like, it's like this awful, painful reality that uh, for Jacob's instance, like, oh my gosh, I just realized something. That as he's expressing these words, why have you deceived me? As he's expressing, these are the words that he heard out of the mouth of Esau. And the full irony of this whole story as Jacob is a man who deceived brother and father to be master of all, is now a servant. But I want you to know this. This is God's mercy in Jacob's life. Because he's revealing to Jacob a powerful faith lesson. That God's promises do not preclude the possibility of God's discipline. And within that higher level um, faith lesson, there's a specific principle and action that I think he wants Jacob to see. And I want you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 6. And I want you to see this in action. Galatians chapter 6 in the New Testament. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Galatians 6 verses 7 and 8. This is the Apostle Paul. He says this, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. He starts, Apostle Paul starts us off by saying, God will not be mocked, which just means, hey, dude, you can sin to the utmost. Go ahead, but you cannot deceive yourself. You cannot change this principle that whatever you sow, this is God's principle, whatever you sow, you will reap. That principle is always operative. It's a fabric of our universe, a principle that can no more be changed than the principle that we must eat and drink to survive. If I have a, a, a packet of apple seeds and plant them in an orchard, I'm not at harvest going to harvest oranges, Right? Whatever you sow, you reap, nothing more, nothing less. And Paul says we either sow to the spirit or we sow to the flesh. And he uses these two words, flesh and spirit, from a prior illustration in chapter 5. If you scan up verses 16 through 26, uh, flesh and spirit, two, two things opposed in our hearts to one another for our allegiance, flesh and spirit. Flesh referring to our sinful nature, that which produces the works of, of the flesh, which he expresses in verses 19 through 21 of chapter 5. Works of the flesh, such as sexual immorality, and idolatry, and jealousy, and anger, and envy, and so on. 
For the one who sows to the flesh operates their life to the sinful nature. And when we sow to the flesh, we reap, as he says in the text, corruption. Not political corruption, but a corruption in our text that literally means the decaying of your body. The decaying of your body. Imagine the stench. If you sow seeds of flesh at harvest, you will reap from the flesh what the flesh has to offer. And what the flesh has to offer is enslavement, is destruction, and the decomposing of hope. And we can use the life of Jacob to clearly see this in action, right? Jacob, he sows seeds of the flesh, deceit to brother and father. And come harvest, what does Jacob reap? He reaps from the flesh only that which the flesh has to offer. Enslavement. He's enslaved to Laban for 14 years. Destruction. In a real way, he's destroyed by a marriage to Leah, a woman he does not love. And his hope is being decomposed. I I think, like, he's probably doubtful of who God is. Like, everything wrong is going on in my life. His hope being decomposed. The seeds Jacob sows... Jacob reaps. We see that very clearly. But the Apostle Paul says, but the one who sows to the Spirit reaps what? Eternal life. It's the making of all things new through Jesus and the work of the Spirit, which produces new fruit in our life that, as we know, the fruits of the Spirit in verse 22 through 24, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The one who sows to the Spirit operates their life according to this new nature, transformed by the work of the Spirit. In John 10.10, Jesus says, I have come that you may have life, and that you may have it abundantly. As a follower of Jesus, if you are a follower of Jesus, our desire must be the sowing of the seeds to the Spirit. Those daily decisions to walk in line and step with the Spirit, which will reap fruit that is not transient, but eternal. Your spiritual harvest is entirely equivalent to your spiritual sowing. And perhaps this is helpful. I, at times, often, I would love to be fluent in Spanish or any other language, but Spanish. Uh, I took two years in high school. Some of you are probably with me on that. But all I got out of that two years is like, que tal? I don't know if I say it right, but that's all I have. Like, I don't know Spanish at all. Ecuador team can back me up. I was a total disaster in Ecuador. I don't know what is going on in that language. But I would like to know it. It would be helpful. It would be cool. I'd love to be fluent. But if I'm going to know Spanish, I'm going to have to buckle down and get to work, right, every day, practicing, working, training, using I'm not just going to wake up like one day and then all of a sudden like, woo, I'm speaking like Spanish. I wish I could be like fluent right now to really emphasize like waking up and speaking Spanish. I should have memorized something. (laughs) Yet for many of us, when it comes to the things of God, we live as though there's going to be this day where we just like wake up. And all of a sudden, we pray more than we normally do. We read more of our Bible than we normally do. We start reading these deep theological books more than we ever have. And we're completely captivated by all things God. Now, God certainly can do that in our hearts. But the reality is that you're going to have to take steps 
to get there. For example, for those of us who desire a better prayer life, which is a good thing, it's probably not wise to, like, okay, I'm going to be, like, really Puritan, and I'm going to get up at 4 a.m. every day and pray for two hours. Sleep's probably going to win that battle. But rather, why not just say, you know what? I'm going to plan 15 minutes tomorrow. I'm going to make that into my schedule. 15 minutes of prayer. And we all know 15 minutes is not long, right? 15 minutes. But when we pray 15 minutes per day for an entire year, I did math, which can be scary sometimes. But 5,475 minutes that year you will have spent in prayer, which equates to four days of solid prayer. And the more you begin to pray, I'm convinced the more you'll see God at work and the more you'll understand God's delight in you and the more you'll be driven even into more prayer. See, this is God's principle in action. It's not that we want to log so many minutes in prayer, but it's this this principle that really small seeds make really big trees. Really small seeds make really big trees. But often we feel or we fail to see the evidence of this truth in our life. We fail, we, 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 we overlook these small, seemingly insignificant and overlooked seeds, and we dismiss them like the 15 minutes of prayer. It's insignificant, it's overlooked. And we fail to see the evidences of these small seeds, like 15 minutes of prayer, turn into large trees. And I think we have to begin asking our hearts, why? Why is that true? For small seeds, they do make really big trees. And I wonder today, where you, where I, what seeds, what seeds are we sowing? Are you sowing seeds of laziness, seeds of indifference? Sowing seeds that provide a lackadaisical approach to the things of God? Even if we just look at this past week, at your schedule, the time you set aside to do what you did, what would it reveal? Did you sow in the spirit or did you sow in the flesh? And if you say, well, I don't think I sowed anything, well, I would probably say you probably sowed to the flesh, for you did sow. You did contribute to tomorrow by what you sowed this past week. Even in this moment, as you sit here listening to me, you're simultaneously sowing and reaping. Sowing and reaping. Right now, sowing and reaping. God, in his mercy, gave Jacob an opportunity to see this principle in action. Yet this was just a small piece of a greater puzzle of God's faith lesson for Jacob. And that is that the promises of God do not preclude the possibility of God's discipline. And it's a faith lesson for, faith lesson for the desert-wandering Israelite to certainly understand a promise people wandering in the desert under discipline for their own disobedience to God. But this is a faith lesson for us as well. And I think of it like this. As a child, I got in trouble lots. And I knew at times I would face, uh, I'd come under some form of discipline. If it was accidental or like circumstantial, like probably not much discipline coming my way. But if I was like a willful, deliberate, like intent like, especially towards, like, disrespecting my mother, I knew that my dad was going to have something to say about this, right? And I would be, maybe you can relate, I'd be like, okay, you're going to your room, and you're going to wait there. 
And I would be like waiting in my room, my heart fluttering, like dreading the sound of my father, the footsteps in the hallway, coming down the hall. The anticipation, right, is always worse than the actuality of what's going to happen. And then he would come, come into my room and say these words, you know, your daddy loves you. And because I love you, I want you to learn. I want you to learn respect and obedience. And the famous line, right, he'd say to me, please know, Jimmy Joe, that this hurts me a lot more than it hurts you. Those words familiar? Classic, right? The parents who love their children discipline their children. It's the loving thing to do because those moments of discipline are incredibly powerful moments to teach and instruct. And I'm so thankful to have parents who did this for me. Proverbs echoes this theme. Proverbs 3, verses 11 through 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father the son in whom he delights. As a loving parent disciplines their child, our loving heavenly father disciplines his children. And those, those are really God-given moments for instruction. And we ask ourselves, how do we misread the discipline of God and our lives as merely, maybe perhaps, accidental. For often we disregard God's discipline in our lives as just a result of randomness. Perhaps it was the fault. We think it's the fault of somebody else. Or we just like, you know what? Life's like invariably hard. Like there's hardships in life. But if you're a Christian this morning, you're a child of God. And as a child of God, your Heavenly Father is rich in mercy. And know that your Heavenly Father in love disciplines that we might receive instruction, that we might receive correction, but that we also come to recognize, to have an opportunity to recognize and repent of our sins, of our past misdeeds, both past and present. You see, in Jacob's life, in God's mercy, he pursues Jacob, and he doesn't allow Jacob to escape his hand of discipline, but brings Jacob under Laban's rule for 14 years. And in that 14 years, there's a lot of moments of instruction for Jacob to be had. And it's also moments for Jacob to recognize and repent of his, fat, of his past misdeeds. Whatever you sow, you will reap. The unfolding events in Genesis 29 of Jacob's life, it's not a random unfolding of events. It's not the result of another's faults, nor is it the invariable hardships of life. Rather, it's God's merciful hand of discipline. And know that all discipline is merciful because it brings about teaching and correcting. And it also ultimately brings about repentance. And that is good news, that God pursues us. Fine family, do not misread the discipline of God as merely accidental for as a parent disciplines their child, our Heavenly Father disciplines his children. Our faith lesson, our second faith lesson, is that God's promises do not preclude the possibility of God's discipline. This morning we've traveled alongside Jacob, seeing these two faith principles, that God's promises are certain and guaranteed, and that God's promises do not preclude the possibility of God's discipline. And I want you to hear this as we close this morning, that these two faith principles 
are cemented in this truth. Hear this, that despite in our story, our narrative over longer time, Jacob's deceit, despite Jacob's deceit, despite Jacob leaving the land of promise to find a wife, despite Laban deceiving uh, Jacob into the wrong marriage, despite the fact that Jacob does not love Leah, and despite the fact that Jacob now is enslaved for 14 years, enduring the discipline of God, the purposes and plan of God remain fulfilled. And I love this as I was studying this week. And one of the greatest acts of dramatic irony is that God chooses Leah, the unwanted daughter, the unloved wife of Jacob, the not as beautiful sister of Rachel. God chooses Leah that through her line of descendants, Jesus would be born. Christian or not, this morning, our hope is evidenced in the life of Leah. The unwanted, the unloved, the unbeautiful sister. And as followers of Jesus, often we may feel more often like a Leah in our life. Unwanted, unloved, unbeautiful. But here's the gospel truth. That in the eyes of God, our Heavenly Father, we appear as Rachel. Beautiful and loved and cherished. I want to close by reading out of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 27 through 31. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we desperately are in need of your help to recognize you at work in our lives, that blessings come from you, that you graciously pursue us, that we might have opportunities to recognize and repent of our sins. And Lord, despite the fact that we are unwanted, that we are unloved, that we are unbeautiful, often in our lives, Lord, you pursued us and loved us. Lord, help us to grow in this gospel truth, marveling at your grace. We need your help, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. The author of Hebrews uh, reminds us of God's discipline for us.